I'm Charlotte Dyer. I'm off council in the planning team at Herbert Smith Freehills, and I'm the host of this second episode in our Back to Basics Development Consent Regime podcast series. Before we get started, I want to introduce my colleague, Rebecca Butterworth, who will be our speaker for today's episode. Rebecca joined the planning team in 2017 as my trainee, and I obviously didn't put her off too much, as she is still with us now as a qualified planning associate. Thank you for joining us today, Rebecca. Thanks, Charlotte. I'm very pleased to be with you and discussing the next part of the DCO process today. In the previous episode, I talked about the pre-application stage of the process, including which projects fall within the regime and the requirement for statutory consultation, which must take place during the pre-application stage. What will this second episode cover? In this episode, I will be looking at the preparation of the DCO application once the pre-application consultation has taken place as well as the submission of the application to the Planning Inspectorate and the acceptance process. Later episodes in this series will cover the pre-examination, examination and decision stages. OK, so the applicant has carried out pre-application consultation and wishes to proceed with its proposed project. Can you describe what happens next? Once the applicant has carried out the pre-application consultation, it must have regard to the consultation responses when preparing the DCO application. This doesn't mean that the applicant must take on board all suggestions made by consultees. Indeed, that is likely to be impossible, as consultees often have differing opinions about a project. However, the applicant must carefully consider them when finalising the application, which will be submitted to the planning inspectorate. Most projects that go through the development consent regime involve major and complex development proposals. It is therefore common for an application to contain a large number of documents. Some of these are prescribed by statute and include the application form, the draft of the development consent order, plans showing the proposals, any documents required relating to compulsory acquisition of land, such as a book of reference, and environmental and habitats information, such as an environmental statement. However, the applicant may also provide additional information and documents which it considers the Secretary of State will require in order to make a decision. That's a broad range of technical documents then. You and I know from experience that many aspects of the application require the input of the legal and consultant team, don't they? Yes. The whole project team are heavily involved in the application stage. One part of the application which requires a lot of technical input is the preparation of the environmental statement. This will build upon the preliminary environmental information provided in the pre-application consultation, which you talked about in episode one, and will set out the applicant's assessment of the likely significant environmental effects of the project. Meanwhile, the legal team will review the application documents and in particular, will be responsible for preparing the draft development consent order. This is drafted in a very specific way as a statutory instrument and careful consideration of the drafting and formatting requirements is needed. What are some common problems which occur during this stage? One of the biggest challenges during this stage is the sheer volume of information that needs to be prepared and the fact that so many different authors will be involved. The team really needs to work together and be aware of the requirements of each discipline to ensure a consistent approach throughout the application. 
The best applications are the result of a joint collaborative effort and the use of internal deadlines that build in sufficient time for peer and legal review. The lawyers really have their work cut out for them at this stage. Application preparation has been made harder this year due to the coronavirus restrictions, but it can still be done effectively through the use of a file sharing platform that all authors and reviewers have access to, regular virtual team catch-ups and clear communication of required actions and deadlines. Other common pitfalls occur as a result of a failure to plan sufficiently in advance. For example, some types of environmental surveys must be carried out at particular times of year. Failing to plan for these surveys in the pre-application programme can delay submission by a year. A competent and experienced project team will not only help to maximise the likelihood of the application being accepted and ultimately successful, but will also make the process more efficient as they know how to watch out for these pitfalls that I've just mentioned. A lot of work is involved and it takes a lot of time. How long does the preparation of the application take overall? As you explained in episode one of this series, Charlotte, there is no statutory minimum timescale for the pre-application stage. And that includes the preparation of the application itself. The length of time taken will depend on the project. This means that the applicant has flexibility to decide how long to spend preparing the application. Enough time will need to be spent to ensure that the application is of an acceptable standard and that full details of the proposed development are provided. It is important for applicants to take the time to get the application right, as once it has been submitted and accepted, there are limited opportunities to amend the proposals and such amendments are not at the applicant's discretion. Rather, the planning inspectorate decides whether to accept or reject them. It's also an important stage in the process, as all information in the application lays the groundwork for the later examination. So whilst the applicant is in control during the pre-application stage, after submission of the application, the planning inspectorate effectively takes over control of the application examination. And this is a key point in the DCO process. Can you talk more about the acceptance stage? Following submission by the applicant, the planning inspectorate will review the documents provided over 28 days and confirm whether the application is of a standard that can be accepted. So the acceptance stage only takes 28 days? Yes, this timing is set out in statute. It's a relatively short period to review a major and complex application. This is why it's so important for the applicant to provide the application in the correct format and with a clear navigation or signposting guide. The planning inspectorate uses an acceptance checklist known as the Section 55 checklist when deciding whether to accept the application. And it's a good idea for the applicant to submit a draft of that checklist to help to demonstrate to the inspectorate how the application is of the required standard and appropriate consultation has been carried out. The applicant is also required to provide the planning inspectorate with an advance notice of submission so they can ensure they have enough resources to undertake the review. At the end of the 28 days, the planning inspectorate will decide whether or not to accept the submitted application on behalf of the Secretary of State. If the application is not accepted, the applicant will have six weeks to challenge the refusal. If it is accepted, the project will proceed to the next stage in the process, which will be covered in the next episode of the podcast series. 
Thanks, Becky. That's very interesting. One thing we've not discussed yet is the local authorities role. Can you explain what the role is of the local authorities during the application preparation and acceptance stage? Yes, of course. It is advisable to engage with the local authorities during the pre-application stage, although they have no statutory role outside of the pre-application consultation. They will be important participants in the later stages, though. And so a proactive approach to voluntary engagement will enable the applicants to prepare a more complete application, particularly in relation to mitigation of impacts. It is usual for the local authorities to be responsible for discharge and enforcement of most or all of the planning conditions known as requirements in a DCO following the grant of the DCO itself. During the 28 day acceptance stage, the local authorities will be invited to make representations on the adequacy of the pre-application consultation. The planning inspectorate will take this into account when making the acceptance decision. However, the local authorities are not able to give views on the merits of the application at this stage. Thank you, Rebecca. That's provided a useful summary of the second stage in the development consent process. Thanks, Charlotte. The next episode in this podcast series will cover the pre-examination stage. And for that episode, I will be joined by my colleague, Julia McCann. Please note that whilst this podcast is intended to provide a general overview of the development consent regime, the law can change quickly and a general overview can't take account of the many different factors that will affect each individual case. So please seek independent legal or professional advice. If you would like more information on anything mentioned in today's podcast or any of the other podcast episodes in this series, please contact a member of the Herbert Smith Freehills planning team using the contact details on the podcast homepage.